Hello, welcome to Storytellers of STEM. My name is Rachel Villani. Today's episode is all about salt. Um, our storyteller is Luis Santiago Rosario. He's from Puerto Rico, and he's a PhD student um, in evolutionary ecology studying sodium, which AKA is salt. Um, and I feel like after this episode, you're gonna think about salt differently as you go about your business wandering around this world, because I know that I do. Um, one thing that I thought was interesting that Luis says is uh, salt tolerant does not equal needs salt, basically I'm summing up, but uh, I always knew plants can be salt tolerant, but I guess it never clicked for me that uh, tolerance does, means they have figured out a way to deal with it, not that they need it, right? So um, yeah, so there's a bunch of cool things about salt, butterflies need salt, and they get it from various sources, and we talk about mangroves and all kinds of things, um, mostly butterflies, because butterflies are awesome, and that's what Luis mostly studies. Um, any rate, so enjoy, and uh, yeah, go learn about some salt. I am from, from Puerto Rico, but I moved here in 2017, and I'm, I'm in biological science, so I'm a PhD there. Uh, do you know Dr. Kyle Harms? I think I actually took his conservation biology class my yeah. senior year, 13 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> so, so he's my advisor right now. So yeah, my work is more like ecology slash evolution, development mm -hmm. and population. And it's like all over the place, but it's everything looking through the, through the standpoint of sodium, right? Uh -huh. Sa salt. So yeah, that does what I plan to talk about today. <laughs> yeah, please tell me all about it because like I said in our messages, the only thing I ever really think about salt is like salt water versus fresh water because I'm a wetlands person and that's just like my wheelhouse, right? Okay. So tell me all about it, please. Okay, so I mean, sodium is very interesting. Sodium is, is the seventh most abundant uh, element in the earth crust. So we find it, we find it, very readily in, in the Earth's crust. However, it is not very available in terrestrial environments. So because with rain happening, you know, often, sodium is one of those elements that it gets uh, leached out from the soil, right? And, and this is very interesting because for animals, sodium is particularly essential. Sodium is important for the development of muscle and neuron tissues, but also the function of neuron and muscle tissues uh, with the sodium and potassium pumps. For example, it is most important for osmoregulation. That's why you cannot drink uh, water from snow because you get kind of dehydrated. Oh, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah, so you shouldn't drink snow. Um, and that's one of the reasons, uh, you know, com combining other minerals, but sodium is one of the most important. Uh, however, for plants, you know, if we divide animals and plants, for plants, sodium is not essential in, in general terms. Um, and it's toxic, actually, for plants, because it, it kind of functions, wants to function as potassium, but it's not. You know, it's, it's not potassium. And, 
and the plants can't deal with it. And then all of a sudden the plants are trying to accumulate or remove it and they, they can't. So, but some plants do. This is the interesting thing. Um, you know, we, we know that there are a lot of plants that, that are found in the coast. Uh, we know that there are a lot of plants that are found in deserts. Deserts are highly saline uh, in general. So these plants have found ways to deal with sodium in very innovative, uh, novel ways. Um, so then what is interesting to me is this interaction between what animals need and what plants have, right? So then, yeah, this herbivore needs sodium because if it doesn't have sodium, it can't develop. But then its food source is, doesn't have sodium. What do they do? And animals have many ways to go around it, but I'm particularly interested in herbivores because there are some herbivores that are not able to move around like caterpillars um, or aphids or insects that are very honed in to one host or one plant and they can't get away from it. So what do they do? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm in, in that interface, right? Between, between the soil, uh, the plants, and the herbivores. Yeah, so I, I wanna comment on something you said because it just like blew my mind, even though it's so simple. So I work in salt wetlands, salt, salt marshes, and I know that there are species that are salt tolerant. And I know that phrase, salt tolerant, salt tolerant, whatever. I've said it a bunch of times. And it never occurred to me to think about it from the other way around. Like the plant doesn't need the salt. It just has to figure out a way to deal with the salt. Exactly. No, it, yeah. It's in those words, but it just didn't click. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. And then, and then, so it is important to understand what's the difference between salt tolerant and actually a plant that needs it. Mm -hmm. um, and there are some actually there are like that. Um, so that's what you call a halophyte. There's a oh. plant that loves salt. Um, some, so some halophytes that we know that we eat, you know, that we cultivate and we eat are, you know, quinoa. Mm. Quinoa is one of them. Um, beets actually need oh. a little bit of salt to grow big. Um, let's see. Um, there's some that like the salt words in the coast, uh, those mm -hmm. are, they need salt. If they don't have salt, they can't grow. Mm -hmm. Um, so, and then you have the salt tolerant plants, which, mm -hmm. um, they can grow in an environment that there's no salt. So, and that's the salt grasses. Yeah. Are that. Yeah. It just blew my mind. It was like, this is so simple. I just never thought about it from the other side. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So. You alluded to the fact that herbivores get their salt needs from somewhere else. Where do they get them from? I mean, I assume that depends on the species um, exactly. and their mobility, but. So yeah, we can talk about diff different, um, different types of animals, right? Uh, so mm -hmm. or different clades. Um, if we talk about insects per se, which insects in, in their immature stages, they are kind of stuck you know, with what they have. So I work with Lepidoptera, with, with butterflies and moths, particularly. Those are my preferred systems to work with. And 
so what is interesting is that for some caterpillars, for some species, they they go to cannibalism. Yeah. So if there's not a lot of salt, <laughs> yeah, the bigger instars or the biggest stages of larvae will eat smaller stages. Um, but it's not really known if it's associated with sodium lack lacking per se. It could be a nitrogen uh, lack or deficiency. However, um, it, it is believed that sodium might be the culprit here. And because they have found that when you add a little bit of salt to the artificial diets, they, they don't do cannibalism. Oh, interesting. So there's that. Um, for adult butterflies, um, what is interesting is that males actually have what is called a nuptial gift. And the nuptial gift is in the sperm or the spermatophore. And what, what male butterflies do is that they, they float around, they find a puddle, and they drink the water from a puddle. Oh, I've seen them do that. Yeah, and they do that in, in they're usually males. They can do also that with, with in turtles. If the turtles are on top of the water and they drink the tears of the turtles, and even alligators or crocodiles, they do that huh. as well. Or they can feed on, on carcasses. So they drink all that water, they accumulate that sodium, and they give that sodium to the female when they mate. So, and other animals do other different things. Like, for example, uh, I read a study recently. Well, one of the students of my advisor, she worked with bats in the Amazon. And in the Amazon, in the interior, there's super lack of sodium. And what these bats do is that they go, they swoop down into a puddle of, of salt water that is in little ponds in the Amazon and they drink the water. So they get the Clever critters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's really but, cool. Yeah, but, but it's important to understand that the, the animals that are deficient of sodium are usually the herbivores, hmm. not the carnivores. The carnivores eat the sodium from other animals that they feed on. So that makes sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This is might be a silly question because but I don't know. Does sodium like accumulate up the food chain? Like do some animals have more sodium than others if you're a carnivore? I mean I it might be an impossible question to answer. No, I think that's a really that's a really good question. Um I've seen that a couple of studies that if you increase sodium in in the plants, actually the larvae or the caterpillars increase their sodium almost almost uh linearly right however i don't think so i don't think that across the chain is uh, is by accumulated because we have uh, kidneys right right yeah i guess that makes sense <laughs> yeah and there's homeostasis going on in our bodies yeah yeah so maybe just bigger animals obviously would have more because they're just larger um versus like something smaller just and still be in equilibrium i guess yeah i mean i huh. think i think i think it's not that we have more i think we have the same concentration <laughs> right yeah yeah but obviously in terms of atoms we have more <laughs> right that's what i was trying to get at yeah but you said it way better <laughs> yeah so, yeah it's important to 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 see that because you don't want to have too much because that way you will be dehydrated yeah 
Yeah. Or too little and your cells will explode because there's no osmo regulation. Right, yeah. Yeah, I guess that's only something that like a really big large predator would even think about though, or even like matter to because, you know. Yeah. <laughs> they're not the ones that are eating large, you know, I don't know. I don't know how to say it. A hawk's not eating like a large animal. <laughs> exactly. <You know>? Exactly. <laughs> there's a limit on how much animal can eat. Um, that's really cool. So you study uh, butterflies and sodium and I think you said sunflowers or I saw it on your website maybe. Yeah, sunflowers. Yeah. Yeah. So can you tell me about that? Because that sounds really cool and also really pretty. That's my like, just a, it seems very appealing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but also interesting. Let me be clear about that. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that's the reason why, well, that's one of the reasons why I selected the system because uh, they're pretty. <laughs> no, the real the real reason is that um, so sunflowers, uh, particularly the common sunflower, is found is widespread in the United States, right? Mm -hmm. So I wanted to I I've been wanting to know what is the association between the environmental sodium and that of plants, right? Mm -hmm. And that's called the phytochemical landscape. Right, uh, we're talking about the chemistry of the plants across a whole range of landscapes. Um, but then we want to associate those differences in the phytochemical landscape to the development of the herbivores. So that's why I'm using the butterflies because I found, I found a specialist butterfly in sunflowers um, that are great, they're beautiful. They're called the bordered patch. Um, there are small nymphalid butterflies, which is in the family related to to the monarchs, oh. um, and they're they're great. Um, so the idea here is to for me to understand what is the effect of sodium plant sodium on butterfly development, but mm -hmm. also on behavior. And I mean, it seems to be very case specific, mm -hmm. but the information that we might get from this could be, you know, extrapolated into a bigger picture, you know, what are animals actually doing and what is the effect of that phytochemical landscape on animals. And the reason why this is important is because we, as humans, we like to move stuff around. <laughs> We've been moving salt for ages around uh, especially in the north of the United States or northern countries where salt is used for de-icing mm -hmm. uh, and you're adding, you know, you're contaminating the environment. Also, uh, climate change. The more drought there is, the more salty things get. Mm -hmm. And so then plants get a double whammy, right? Plants get the drought, but they also get this, the salt and and animals too. So yeah, what is the ecological consequences of all these interactions? And that's what I'm interested. Also in the evolutionary standpoint, right? Then what are the trajectories that these organisms are going to take? Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of ramifications that could happen. <laughs> and just with sodium, and that's a cool thing. I'm, I'm talking about sodium now because it's what I'm working with, but mm -hmm. This could also be for any other metal, um, like magnesium, uh, <laughs> calcium, potassium. Um, we're talking about things that are needed, are necessary, um, but too much or too little is bad. You know? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it makes it sound very precarious. Like we need these compounds or chemicals or however you phrase it, uh, you know, sodium, whatever. But like we don't always get them from the things that we eat. Like if you're a butterfly, you know. Uh, yeah. it's like a- we, we humans, we do very well at eating a lot of sodium. Yeah, right, yeah, too much probably. <laughs> <laughs> Especially the people that eat uh, those um, uh, soups. Oh, yeah. Ramen noodle soups. Uh-huh. Man, that's not good for you. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, there's a reason, you know, people, is it like high blood pressure or something, like eat less salt? I think yes. that's one of the uh, impacts of it. Yeah. <laughs> Especially, I feel like I'm going to generalize. I feel like in Louisiana, um, all the like seasonings that we use for things have like loads of salt in them too. And we don't realize it because it's like all so spicy. Yeah. Um, no, but that's for for Puerto Rican food too. Like, <laughs> Latin, the American food, we love salt. But, yeah. Yeah. It's a shame food's delicious. So yeah, we should be, be aware of what our body actually needs. Exactly. Um, yeah. As a living being. That's really cool. So how did you get into um this whole like corner of ecology? I say corner, but really ecology is like massive. So Yeah, exactly. No, it is a corner. But so um the way that I think about things is more like big questions, right? Mm-hmm. And for me it's more about trying to tackle big questions in a more integrative way rather than just focusing on one thing. Um, so I come from more like a biotechnological, evolutionary, genetics mm-hmm. side of things. Um, but when I interviewed here at Louisiana State University, I, my advisor was like, yeah, so I've been interested in sodium and, but I was like, cool, let's read. So I started reading a bunch of papers and the ideas starting to pop up, you know, mm-hmm. like, okay, so what's going on here? What's, what's going on with the animals? What's going on with the plants? And everything, everything just kind of like falls into place, right? I think I was lucky enough for that to happen. Uh, that doesn't always happen. Mm-mm. But in terms of the questions, it just came really wonderful for me in that case. So so what I've been wanting to do is kind of integrate all those areas of science. Um, reading, reading a lot. I, <laughs> I think that's the secret. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like you're like an ideas person. I mean, you basically said that, but, but like, I'm a doer. Like I need someone to come up with the ideas and I just go do them for them, um, yeah. which is why I'm not getting my PhD. <laughs> uh, so that's like, I read a paper. I'm like, oh, that's cool the end (laughs) that's awesome that you work that way and realize it and have all these ideas and are like you know working on figuring them out because I think that's a lot of what we need to happen in general especially in ecology yeah I mean I think it's 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 just it's just a mindset right everybody Mm -hmm. has different things that they do and and yeah I I love doing it (laughs) yeah 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 well if we were all ideas people nothing would get done (laughs) Uh, exactly. <laughs> tons of ideas and no action, uh, but we need, you know, all y'all too, obviously. Yeah. Um, how'd you, so how'd you end up at, I mean, you don't have to answer this if you don't want to. How'd you end up at, at LSU from Puerto Rico? No, I can. Um, so 
the interesting my my journey to come here was really interesting um i guess that one of the funniest things is that my friends and family from puerto rico and 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 you know other parts of the united states uh they were like are you going to louisiana to the south are you crazy uh, but but no i was like look i i found a great advisor i think i think that's what i need to focus in and mm -hmm and move forward so i started my phd in 2016 another university um but things were not working out really well for me over there maybe in the part of the career side so i decided to yeah let's give another try to another program something different so that's when i found my advisor and was like yeah this is it i'm going there and and that's how it happened. Yeah, that's awesome. I think I've been always open to any possibilities and any opportunities. And yeah, when when you want to do something, you go wherever you do whatever it takes, right? Right. Yeah. No, and I think that's awesome. I think that having the flexibility to be like, well, this is what I want to do, but if I have to go there to do it, then I'm just going to go there to do it. Like, do and being able to do that is is awesome. Exactly. Um, not everybody's willing to to do that, so. That's yeah, cool. and they say like all the way from Puerto Rico, but it's not really that far. <laughs> like, no, not no, reality, I mean, but it's not. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. I always am just curious how people end up places that they are. I'm like, it just fascinates me. Yeah, no, and look, my my perspective of Baton Rouge and Louisiana has been incredible. You know, this is a really great place to live in, and. And, and it's fun. I mean, the Mardi Gras, the culture is very similar to Latin America. The food is amazing. I always tell my friends that, that Louisiana food is the best in the United States by far. <laughs> it's definitely a totally different ball game. That's for sure. <laughs> yes. yes yeah. It is. yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. Well, good. I'm glad you like it here. I mean, it's definitely a special place. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm from Louisiana, so maybe I'm a little biased and maybe also just like used to it. So maybe I don't realize all the special things, but. Um, it, is. it is really kind of nice. Yeah, that's good. Okay, so you told me that salt was used as currency and I want to know more about that. Yeah, okay. <laughs> How wow. does that work? <laughs> so I think I think I ran a couple of, uh, a, a year ago or something like that, that I think in the Roman, I think it was in the Roman Empire, salt was used as a currency at some point. <laughs> Uh, it's so silly. <laughs> I mean, imagine imagine living in a continental place where you're not able to get salt. Um, uh -huh. I mean, here's the thing. We take salt for granted because we always have it in our in our kitchens, you know. Right. Yeah. And it's cheap. We can always go to the supermarket, get it for a dollar. Uh, you know, we take it for granted. Uh, there are people that don't have that uh, in the world right now, too. So, so yeah, why not be a currency, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know, tobacco, or it's a commodity, uh -huh. but it's also right. a necessity. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So, yeah, it happened in the Roman Empire. It did happen a while back. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, I guess anything can be currency, right? It's just got to be, somebody's got to value it. Um, yeah for it to work that's i just never would have thought of that that's just really cool yeah um, no, it's, it is it is okay so what am i missing about your research and your interests? because i feel like there are things i should ask but i don't know what to ask 
Um, wow. <laughs> <laughs> what I mean, else do you want to talk about that you do with you know salt or your research or things you're interested in? I mean, um, right now the bulk of my research is is dedicated to to you know to to trying to understand the estrophic level interaction of sodium. However, there are um, other projects that I've been working with that are pretty cool, specifically teaching. Mm. Um, so in here in Louisiana, we, in Louisiana State University, we have this program that is called, uh, uh, course undergraduate research experience where we as TAs, we get to create a course that is related to our research. Oh, and then cool. we teach our research to undergrad students and they go to the process. They create questions, they create ideas. They get data, they analyze it, and they compile it and then make a poster. And then we have a symposium. Hmm. So I've been using sunflowers and salt for teaching students and freshman students. And the good thing is that at the end of the semester, they get this holistic experience hmm. of what really evolution is, you know, because people learn evolution wrong. <laughs> <laughs> what ecology is, um, which people also learn ecology wrong. Um, and then what you can do with science, right? Um, I think it's a great experience to teach people that going into science doesn't have to be becoming a doctor, a medical mm -hmm. doctor, or- right, exactly. Yeah, or being, I don't know, related to medicine. <laughs> yeah. We can do a lot of things. So that's something that I've been working on as another project. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't think that people realize just how big STEM is or just how big science is or all the different aspects of all these different fields because it's massive. There's so many things. It is. Yeah, and it's sad yeah. when, you, when you start teaching. I don't know if you have had the experience of teach, teach mm -hmm. but when you teach the freshmen, uh, students, in the first day you ask how many want to go to med school, and it's like, boom, like 90% <laughs> of your classroom. And it's like, okay, cool. Yeah, that's a good goal. Um, however, it's not just, it's not the only thing. Um, right. And I think that this is a good opportunity for us as scientists to actually bridge those gaps, right, of knowledge. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like people know engineering and they know medicine and they know like law school and business, but there's like, you know, I know those aren't science related, but like those are like the couple of things that people know of, that everybody knows about. And they don't know that like, oh, ecology is a thing or like, oh, biology is a thing, you know, whatever. Like there's so many aspects and people yeah. just don't know the words for them all the time. And they just think, oh, well, there's only a couple of things. I'll go to med school, but there's so many more things you can do. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I. I mean, I was one of those people. I didn't. I didn't know that the word for what I wanted to do was like be a biologist. I thought just biology was you know living things and like oh, but there's like wildlife. That's what I really wanted to do. Um. And so you know, I didn't have those words either. But you know, at least I learned them. Hopefully, everybody gets to. Yeah. Good. Yeah. That. That's. I mean, what you said is like the reason I started this podcast, right? I'm like, oh, there's so many cool things that people do that nobody knows about that people should know about because it's cool. 
Yeah, no, and, and this is great. And I congratulate you for doing something like this because it is it is a good way for also for us to expose what we're doing in a informal setting. Yeah, exactly. Because the way that we do it is just let's give a talk, but it's always so jargony and so yeah. difficult to to put it into like a more layman's term or mm -hmm. easy to understand. Uh, but yeah, yeah, this is awesome. <laughs> yeah, and this is like accessible. It's free. It's on, you know, most people have a smartphone. The apps are free, you know. Mm -hmm. So it's like as accessible as it could be. You don't need a laptop or some kind of special equipment or anything. Yeah, that's um, good. Yeah, so I mean, I can't take full credit for this. It came out of homework for this leadership program I'm doing called Homework Bound. So <laughs> I was like, how to increase my visibility, which is part of the homework. It's like, I don't know. I only have so many things I can say, but I have all these friends who do cool stuff that would be willing to share. So, and I'm sure there's other people out there who'd be willing to share. <laughs> so that's where it was born from. Great. Yeah, yeah, that's really good. Really good idea. So do you... <laughs> Do we know how the butterflies get their salt if it's not from the sunflowers? Or is it from the sunflowers? And I miss that. Yeah, I think it's, it's just going to be uh, from, from the larval stages, right? Mm -hmm. It's going to be from the sunflowers. But, I mean, whatever they eat, mm -hmm. that's what they get. And yeah, I think right. for an animal like that, <laughs> whatever you eat, that's what you are, you know? It's just yeah. doesn't work any other way. Uh, yeah, for some insects, things are a little bit easier. Um, then you have grasshoppers, which can actually hop from plant to plant. Mm -hmm. And that can, you know, have this huge super organism that are working together to for the benefit of the whole colony. Um, and also um, bees actually get their sodium from, from the pollen they, they get. Oh, yeah. That's cool. The, um, yeah, there's a really interesting, actually, study on that, on bees and pollen. Uh, they have found that sodium is the most limiting resource for, for bees. Oh. And it's actually worse when they are feeding in monocultivated areas. So if there's just one type of plant, it's uh -huh. really bad for them. Oh. So you wanna, if you have bees, you want to have a really bunch of di different flowers for them to come and, and forage. Yeah, that's cool. So yeah, I mean, I mean monocultures are in in general not great for exactly. a lot of wildlife. But. No, definitely, and and here you can see an example on how just a simple thing like sodium uh -huh. can actually have big consequences on 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 animals, you know, mm -hmm. and especially animals that we need. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Because we need things to be pollinated so we need bees and they need sodium <laughs> yeah. yeah they need sodium they need us they they need a lot of things yeah okay so when i said that it reminded me of you know i know a lot of deer hunters and i'm in wild it was you know wildlife and fisheries as my degree program so i know a lot of people who deer hunt and i know that a thing that they do for deer um is salt licks and i, I never under i think like, i just never questioned it right i'm just like oh yeah that's just a thing they do. I never thought about why is it a thing that's done. Um, no, it's, that, it's, it's just like, because they are super attracted to it. Yeah, and, and like, you're herbivores. Yeah, and they they will they will lick that <laughs> for days, you know, and that's where you get this, you know, couple of individuals come. Yeah. You can hunt them. That's funny. I wonder. 
<laughs> makes me wonder like how people figured that out like you know the first time around like oh did we just like have some salt out and realize it was attracting deer or whatever so actually actually um big animals big ungulates like that they will um excavate the ground mm. and feed on the dirt huh. and it's to get sodium um one other interesting thing is that um oh my gosh mooses mooses they will feed on a aquatic plants because they have a little bit more salt yeah um they will go in and, and feed on that so yeah ungulates will will find their way to to get that little bit of salt <laughs> yeah that's cool and i mean there's definitely i mean this isn't you know butterflies but it's still sodium related uh there's definitely like deer and moose and stuff that live in areas with like saline lakes you know yeah yeah and and, cool. and in that case they won't be that limited so right. they lose this behaviors of trying to look for sodium. They just maybe go and drink a little bit uh -huh. and they're good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think, uh, I know I'm talking about a lot of studies. That's why I've read a lot about. Those. Yeah. Yeah. No, it makes sense. <laughs> but there's another one that was really fun to read and is they were comparing populations of bison from the Eastern Great Plains and the Western Great Plains. Mm -hmm. And they found that the ones in the Eastern Great Plains have smaller populations, right? Smaller uh, groups of individuals. And they migrated more oh. than the ones in the West that had bigger uh, groups and migrated less. And it was related to sodium in the plants. Because yeah. plants in the East, because it rains so much, they uh -huh. have less sodium. And the ones in the West, when since it's drier, they have more sodium and they don't have to move a lot. So, yeah, oh, that's fascinating. What, what really fascinates me is how they get that cue, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, oh my gosh, I really want something salty today. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I want a snack that is, you know, salty. I need to go get it. Yeah. Yeah. How does that, like, I know what that sounds like in my head, but like, what is that like to a bison or a deer or that, that's the question you know that's those are the questions those are yeah. the, the where my research kind of comes in um like in terms of the butterfly um you know remember when i told you about the nuptial gifts mm -hmm. does a female actually select a male that has a more salty nuptial gift than the other do they have those capabilities yeah um does a female know when a plant is salty or not for the, her babies um you know they do know they do taste the sodium because when you add a little bit of water with salt or water without no salt they go straight to the water with salt oh, cool. uh, they go at it and they drink that uh so they do find it hmm. uh, and insects are very interesting because they have uh chemo receptors in their in their legs mm -hmm. in their tarsis so Animals do have, especially terrestrial animals, do have those capabilities. Um, but in terms of behavior, in terms of development, we, we don't know very well what's going on. Mm -hmm. and that's where I hope I can give a little bit of light to the world. <laughs> right, yeah. Bias. Figure out that little piece of the puzzle, maybe, right? Exactly. I say exactly. a little piece, but the puzzle's, you know, worldwide. <laughs> so, <laughs> do this butterflies that you study um can you tell me the name again so they're the bordereth patch 
Okay. Yeah, uh, or or you can call it the sunflower patch too. Okay. Yeah. Do they migrate? A little bit. That's a really good question. Yes, <laughs> they do migrate a little bit. Um, so they are found in Texas, uh, Texas, Aris, uh, New Mexico, um, and all the way to Oklahoma, um, because that's where the big range of sunflowers is. Uh -huh. uh, but sunflowers go from, I mean, common sunflowers go from Texas all the way to California uh, and north all the way to Canada. Hmm. So then you have this plant that is like super widespread. But these butterflies actually migrate from Mexico to ta Texas and back down to Mexico every yeah. year, but just a little bit. So it's not. Yeah, that's still cool. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty far for a butterfly, I feel like. <laughs> it is. And they're, they're pretty tiny. They're not big as monarchs. They're tiny. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I'm going to have to Google it and see what they look like. And that's when you said that they were related to monarchs, that's what made me think that because I know that they migrate. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'm sure not all butterflies migrate, just like not all birds migrate or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so I was just but, curious. But that's a really good, good observation because in that family, a family named Fallidae, uh, there are a bunch of species that do migrate, like the um, the monarch. There's the uh, oh my gosh, what's the name? The Vanessa Cardui, which is the painted lady, mm -hmm. does migrate too, uh, and also the sunflower patch. But there's a couple more that I'm sure does that. Yeah, that's cool. I always find that the way animals move throughout their lives to be interesting because, like. I mean, I don't know what's going on in like a bird's head, right? But they have this thing that tells them, all right, time to go north or go south or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I'm to go fly 2,000 miles now. Uh, yeah, you know, so for insects, bird, but... for insects, it's about photo period. Yeah. It's about light. Uh, so I, I don't know how they do it, but it's kind of like they're counting the, the hours. Yeah. So when the day gets shorter, they are like, no, I need to start moving down uh, and for monarchs they don't do that in one trip so it's not like one monarch goes from Canada all the way down to Mexico they take three or four generations to do that oh really so so the monarch in Canada goes down a little bit lays an egg in Michigan and then that egg develops into an adult and then goes down to Missouri and then and it's kind of like that, you know? <laughs> really? Yeah. We're not, no, I mean, they're tiny, right? Compared to- Yeah. Um, I didn't know that. <laughs> so how long does that process take then? Because it seems like a butterfly wouldn't, you know, survive the depths of winter further north. At least yeah, no, so they take, it, it's short. Their, yeah. their lifespan is pretty short, but they huh. do take those trips longer and longer, you know? Uh, so that is why it's important to have uh, flowering plants here in Louisiana because Louisiana is a pit stop for them. Mm -hmm. Here they get all the nectar they need, energy, and they go to Mexico. Um, but they do that in many generations. They don't do it in one. Yeah. I have no idea. That's really cool. <laughs> it's totally different, right? Because like a bird will just do it all in three days or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, if they're going from North Dakota to South America somewhere or whatever, doing a couple of days. Um, but not every bird migrates the same way. You know, some birds will pit stop for, they'll stop over or whatever for a week instead of yeah. just like stopping for an hour. I don't know how they 
how these birds have evolved to be that way. But yeah, they all do it a little bit differently or different groups do it a little bit differently, I should say. So that's cool that there's something that migrates, but it's not the same same individuals finishing the migration that started. Exactly. So cool. It's just amazing. And I think uh, one of the things that has also been found is that the ones that are in Mexico uh, develop this fatty tissue that is like an energy reserve, uh-huh. uh, which then when they are ready to migrate up, they use all the way to wherever it takes them. I don't know, yeah. to Texas. Um, because you know that they get all the way to like mid Mexico, so it's pretty far. Yeah, it's pretty far. Yeah, it's really really far. However, they do have this energy reserves that brings them up all the way to closer to the United States, and that's where they start laying their eggs and milkweed. Yeah, and those eggs develop into adults, and then they go at it. You know. Yeah. <laughs> but there are some populations of monarchs that don't migrate at all. Yeah. The ones that are found in Florida, uh, in Hawaii, and some in California, since the temperatures are nice every every time, they don't migrate. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, I mean, there's, I'm just thinking about birds because that's what I know. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's the same species of bird that will like be migratory some places and not migratory in other places for the same reasons because like the conditions mean they don't need to migrate. Yeah. You know, they can live there year round. Um, <laughs> fascinating (laughs) yeah that's why insects are so cool (laughs) yeah so it seems like it would be important to have you know butterfly flyways like we have duck flyways or bird flyways or whatever so -hmm. that they have you know the resources and habitat that they need to complete their eight generation migration back and forth or whatever however many numbers it is yeah like that might be important like migration highways <laughs> that's right what... yeah exactly yeah for birds they call them flyways so something similar okay. i guess same idea uh <laughs> it just blew my mind with that that monarchs <laughs> migrate in stages yeah i feel but like people don't know that <laughs> it's amazing and and i think that's why you know they they have uh, it's more difficult for them to do what they do because yeah. With habitat fragmentation, they are not able to find the host plants that they need to lay their eggs. Yeah. So then you have this double effect where you're like running out of energy, but then you need to lay your eggs and and no habitat to lay them on. Uh, so that's what we are doing as humans, you know, trying, mm-hmm. not helping them to do their, what they evolved to do. Right, yeah. Yeah. It's kind of remarkable that we still have these kinds of butterflies, actually. <laughs> yes, it is. I think they're very resilient. Very resilient. Yeah. And that, I, I don't know about in the U.S., but I know that there's like the big preserve that they congregate at in Mexico, but I'm not exactly sure where it is. I've just seen the pictures of it. There's like some place that they all go. Yeah, so it's where? actually in a mountain in a place called Toluca. Um, it's, uh, I think I... Read that is well. I was actually planning a trip to see them, because you know, as a as a yeah. entomologist, that would be a dream. Sure. Uh, it's like six hours uh, west of Mexico City. Okay. Yeah. So in Morelos, I think Morelos is the the state, um, but it's it's far from here. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. 
maybe next year. <laughs> <laughs> if, if coronavirus permits. Yeah, hopefully in the future we can travel and also there will still be monarchs. Yes. Um, so the butterfly that you studied, does it migrate in stages like that or does that one individual go make that jump? I, mean, I don't I know. know. I don't, I don't really know that, but, um, but I imagine that one individual doesn't. Um, their lifespan is pretty short. It's around from, from egg to adult is around 24 to 26 days. Wow. Then as an adult, it can be around, I don't know, uh, a couple of days to a month. Wow. It all, it all depends if the female is virgin or not. Because when they lay eggs, they, they lose all, a lot of resources mm -hmm. and they die soon after. Um, there are some butterflies that can live up to eight or a year, eight months or to a year, um, but they're tropical sunflowers, not the ones here. I gotcha. That that's would tropical be exceptionally... butterflies, sorry. Not... Right. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that seems like that would be exceptionally long for a butterfly now that I know that they mostly live less than a month in that. Yeah. I saw a butterfly this morning. No idea what kind it was. But now it like makes me kind of sad knowing they don't live that long. <laughs> <laughs> they don't, but they do their job really well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're like on, you know, their timeline is just way faster than, you know, humans timeline. Yeah. Um, probably feels like forever to them if, if they can feel such things. <laughs> God, that's really cool. I, I know we got off topic. We're just talking about butterflies, but it's still interesting. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we can talk insects all day. <laughs> insects <laughs> yeah. are amazing. I think yeah. I think scientists and people underestimate insects a lot. They are they are pretty cool, yeah, and needed and necessary. Yeah, I mean, I will be the first to admit I don't really know very much. <laughs> so, <laughs> I can only ID a few species, and usually those are the bigger ones because they're more obvious. Yeah, that's yeah. okay. <laughs> Yeah, that's interesting. What else um, do you want to share? Is there anything about butterflies or salt or stem or anything really? I guess, I mean, let's see, I'm, I'm really glad that you're doing this again. Uh, this is pretty cool. Um, it is something that uh, we should share more often and, and try to overcome, I guess, this barrier that we as scientists have with you know, the general public. Mm -hmm. um, I really hope that, you know, what what is happening now in the world, people start paying more attention to to us. Yeah. <laughs> to, to, but also for us as scientists to be able to communicate things in an easy way, in relatable mm -hmm. way. Um, and I guess this is where you come in and do this wonderful thing, right? Um, yeah, I don't. I don't know. I don't think I have any much <laughs> left. To yeah. Say. Oh well. Well, first, thank you. That's that's very nice of you to say. Second, I totally agree because communication isn't like a thing they teach scientists really. I mean, there was like a public speaking class I took one time, and I don't think that counts. <laughs> they don't like, you know. That's just like get in front of your class and say some things it's not like how to actually take this complex idea and make it something very easily understood to you know the average person general public or whoever without like all the jargon and the slogans and everything else um 
and that's that's a skill that's a hard thing to learn especially like learning it on the fly <laughs> you know it's all trial and error um but it is and actually we we kind of have as scientists we have to learn how to publish our stuff right because mm -hmm. if we don't publish right nobody knows yeah nobody knows and there's no who cares right yeah you need to publish things and yeah we learn how to write and we learn how to but you know hard how yeah. to write and it's hard it's, it's the most difficult thing to do yeah. however communicating is also very difficult mm -hmm. uh, in an effective way and i think that it should be a skill that many scientists should have however it shouldn't be something that everybody has to do yeah i agree it's hard you it know, is it's hard, it's hard. <laughs> people are way more like just have the personality to be those types of communicators um i am not that person <laughs> so, are you really i think you are <laughs> uh i am this i am okay with it like i said one-on-one -on -one, or like i'm not sitting in front of a big group i'm sitting in my extra bedroom at my house you know, uh with like my bike <laughs> yeah i know so it's like there's no pressure because i'm to me right now i'm just talking to you right but then like whenever this episode comes out there how many people are going to listen to it but it's not me like directly trying to be on the spot talking to somebody yeah so that kind of format i'm good with which took me forever to figure out but there are certainly people who are more extroverted and like thrive on that sort of situation where i'm just like oh it's exhausting <laughs> It is still, oh. it, I'm an extrovert and it's still exhausting for me. So yeah. I, I, I know, I know how you feel. Um, but it's also, look, it's also a skill that you get. Uh, yeah. I think teaching helps a lot. Mm -hmm. Teaching takes all that edge off because you kind of force to, to, to do it. Yeah, it's like a learned skill. You get used to it kind of. Exactly. And right now when I, I, I feel, you know, I do get really nervous when I talk to a good group, but I feel I can do it. You know, it's like, yeah. okay, I, I know my stuff, mm -hmm. I'm just going to do it, you know? Yeah. That's it. Yeah. It's going to be confident. <laughs> I haven't stood in front of a group of people since my thesis defense 10 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to keep it that way. Uh, <laughs> um, well, that's good. But, but like I said, you know, I think, I think that there's a way for everybody to communicate their, their research or whatever, but because there's all these different formats. So public speaking maybe for some, podcasts for me, writing for some, you know, oh, there's there's so many ways that things can be communicated that are also engaging for the public. Yes. Um, yeah. We kind of need all of them, honestly. Everybody play to their strengths and all yeah. the different formats. Because everybody learns differently too. Like some people might like to listen to a podcast or like to watch a talk or whatever. Um, yeah. No, and I actually, uh, in my class, the class that I teach, I use all those formats to teach students that there are many ways. You know, I, I have them do an assignment where they have to hear a podcast and, and tell me what they think. Mm -hmm. uh, they go to seminars and they actually make a poster and they talk about the poster yeah. in the symposium. So then they get this idea, you know, this, uh, you know, overall framework of science communication, which mm -hmm. is kind of what we really want them to get, which for me, I learned practically here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> At my 30 years old, you know, I'm <laughs> learning all these little things. And it's like, man, I wish I learned this sooner. <laughs> 
I think that every day. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> I think that right now about the monarchs migrating in. I wish I learned that sooner. That's super cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, not, I mean, I'm 35, and I just discovered that I like podcasting, apparently. <laughs> so, you know, there's always something innovating. new to learn. Yeah. <laughs> always something new to learn. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't have any more questions for you, but it's been fantastic to talk to you. Thank um, you so much. No, this is, this is yeah. a great opportunity, and thank you for letting me oh, talk yeah. to you about salt and, and enamor you with the salty... <laughs> yeah. I'm going to look at the world a totally different way. I tell you next time I go out in the field and be like, I see you Spartina alternate floor dealing with your salt. <laughs> yeah. You're doing a great job. <laughs> look at yeah. the, look at the inside of the leaves. Sometimes they have little clumps of salt. Yeah, they do. Right? Yeah. I've noticed that. Um, and that's an adaptation to... that is particularly to them and mangroves, which is fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's cool. Next time I see a mangrove, we don't see them super often, but I'll have to keep an eye out. I mean, but huh. the, I don't know if it's, uh, I don't know if the Avicenia, which is the one that we have here, mm -hmm. they do that. But the ones in the tropics, there's, there's a bunch of different species of mangroves. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, this is the last thing, right? <laughs> but <for laughs> mangroves, mangroves is a, is a term uh, that doesn't describe one species. Right, yeah, it's like grass. Plants, actually. <laughs> It's like a couple families of plants that actually live in that habitat um, that have almost the same phenotype and the same mm -hmm. way of dealing with, with salt. But there are some species that actually make those salt, uh, that have salt glands and they make those little salt drops. Uh -huh. uh, and then when the rain comes, it washes down and I'm free of my salt. So, yeah. yeah, but now it's in the soil or maybe not, depending on what the surface looks like. It might be in the mud because yeah. I don't know if you've been. Well, I don't. Have you ever seen a mangrove, a real mangrove? Like I've, I've only seen the ones we have here. No, we well, the, 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 like the real mangroves in, in Puerto Rico in the Caribbean side, they are tall, and they have these huge uh, roots, the area roots. I actually have when I was in Puerto Rico. I forgot about it. Oh, awesome! Yes, awesome! So right. you saw yeah. it. So it's all mud that is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Yeah. Pretty fascinating, pretty yeah. fascinating stuff. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's cool. It is fascinating. Yeah, and I'm just like, I just love all things science related, even if I don't know anything about it. And it always, you know, makes me think of like something else that I do know about just because that's what my brain relates it to. Um, yeah. And I just like totally nerd out about anything people want to tell me about, <laughs> cool <laughs> science or ecology or whatever. Um, so I, and I appreciate you reaching out on Twitter to like being interested to come do this because that's awesome. Yeah, um, no, I'm, I'm really glad. I, I always like to talk about, about my research. I hope that we, I really wish we had more ways to do it, but yeah. this, is, this is great. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. But there's all these other different formats for other, you know, types of communication. Yes. But, right. Yeah, awesome. Well, I appreciate you. Thank you very much. Thank you. No, thank you um, for this opportunity and... it's Rachel. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Storytellers of STEM. I know I enjoyed recording it and I love to be able to share everybody's stories with the world. So if you have a story in STEM that you would like to share, please, please, please hit me up. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Flying Cypress or over on Facebook at Storytellers of STEM. 
And I encourage you to reach out to me if you want to tell me a story. Um, I also, even if you don't want to tell me a story, encourage you to gallop on over to Facebook and like my page and I will share tons of cool and interesting things that all the storytellers are doing or have done or things related to things that we've talked about. So there's a ton of information out there that's awesome and that I'll be sharing. So yeah, go like the Facebook page, reach out to me if you want to be on the podcast and have a brilliant day. Thank you for listening. Thank you.